0: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Amy Clement, Managing Partner of Imaginable Futures, a global philanthropic investment firm that believes learning has the power to unlock human potential and aspires to provide every learner with the opportunity and the tools they need to imagine and to realize a brighter future. Amy formerly worked for eBay, where she served as Vice President of Relationship Marketing and as Vice President of Product Strategy and Operations. Joining as one of its earliest employees, Amy also worked for PayPal as Vice President of Product. She then went on to help lead Omidyar Network's work in education, financial inclusion, property rights, and consumer internet and mobile initiatives in key geographies. Let's listen in as she talks to Tom about equity, impact investing, and the importance of values.
1: Amy Clement, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you, Tom. Nice to see you. Hey, It's, uh, it's great to see you. I'm sorry, it's in um, video. It's mm. been a while since I've been to your, uh, mm. been to your office. Mm. Amy, me um, too. Yeah. I uh, It's been a while since you've been in your office. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's, it's been a while, and I would have loved to see you in person instead. I' um, so glad to be here.
1: Amy, I didn't realize that you were an early uh, employee at PayPal. Mm. That must have been a wild ride for the seven years that you were there.
2: Um, You could say that. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You
1: you worked with some of uh, Silicon Valley's biggest personalities, uh, Max and Reid Hoffman and Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. Um, What what were a couple of takeaways from, from the rocket ship that was PayPal?
2: Yeah, there's so many. I'll try to keep this brief. Um, So I was recruited by um, um, X.com back in 1999, which was Elon had started. And I was in the process of applying to business school. So needless to say, I never went to business school. Um, I was the first product manager. We merged with PayPal several months later. Then we we raised our Series C, $100 million round, right literally the week that the bubble burst. So lots of brilliant people, but also a lot of luck at the same time, which I've learned timing is everything. Um, you know, we went public, we got acquired by eBay, just, you know, amazing growth. And so, um, you know, between the amazing, the just spectacular rocket ship of growth, as you say, um, the opportunity to build out a global kind of world-class product and design team, and then just building a product that continues to be sort of the backbone of the internet today. It was, it was pretty spectacular. Um, And, you know, as you say, yes, I worked with a lot of different personalities um, (laughs) and, um, you know, just really privileged to work with, you know, very fantastic group of leaders, diverse leaders who've made huge impacts in their fields, including, you know, and now working with Piero Mediar and his wife, Pam, who are just um, spectacular entrepreneurs, humanists, philanthropists, um, and are really guided by, you know, values and beliefs that I believe in. but you know each each leader it's you know very very unique and i've learned a lot from each one much of which i take with me now in my role as an investor in imaginable futures
1: yeah a- amy it's a it's a great story of talent and timing as you said mm. it, i think you and i have had the, the great fortune of having these 30 year careers that occurred during the information age right when yeah. you, you you finished your math degree at now right as the world was shifting uh, to computers, and and showed up in Silicon Valley right at the beginning of this explosion. And it it really, we've had the good fortune to live through a remarkable period in history. That's right, that's right,
2: yeah. And all mm. of the lessons that come with that, you know, all of the orthogonal thinking and the audacious goals, and you know, the importance of grit and determination, all of that sort of come with that that age.
1: They, they do. And also the cast of characters that you are around. I, I guess I, um, you know, about this time I, I was, uh, we were launching the Gates Foundation and just having the chance to work with, with Bill and Melinda, who, who like Elon and, and Pierre, um, are gifted at thinking large, uh, uh, audacious thoughts about uh, the potential to change large systems. And uh, I, I think we've both had the privilege to 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 grow with people like that uh, at a pretty remarkable time in human history, right? Ab-
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the many reasons that I love my job is I get to work with, you know, with an entrepreneur. I, you know, Pierre is just fundamentally... And, and entrepreneurs think differently, right? They don't see... They don't see walls; they just see small obstacles, and you know, you just need to find your way around them. Um, so, absolutely. And I will also say, you know, many of the people that you were that you were listening and talking about, um, there were also a lot of brilliant females, and I also learned a lot from my colleagues of color.
1: I, I'm glad you added that. I, I think 20 years ago, um, the venture community and the startup community were almost exclusively um white males and we've made mm-hmm. um some progress uh here in the on the left coast investing um sector but but not nearly enough, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, more progress to be made.
1: Um so about thirteen years ago, um you, you shifted from PayPal to eBay and you, you spent a couple of years there um really running part of their global operations, right? And yeah, was I was the first time
2: I was, I was head of product strategy and operations. Yeah.
1: And was that the uh, first time that you began working with Pierre, uh, close you know, or had you had some exposure when you're at PayPal?
2: I had exposure to him in the very early days, um, of PayPal, um, which was really such a treat. Um, and, um, and so really kind of like followed him closely, but I would say that at my time at eBay was when we developed, you know, a better
1: relationship. Um, so I'd love you to have just a little bit of color commentary for uh, on Pierre, because he, mm. he's, I think, less well known than some of the the, the highly visible um, mm-hmm. founders of, of internet startups. But maybe talk a little bit about um, what you appreciated about uh, Pierre's view of the world, and then why uh, you helped launch um, the Omidyar Network.
2: Mm, mm. Yeah, well, um, I can't take credit for launching the Omidyar Network, but I'll certainly um, um, celebrate the fact that, that it was. Um, so Pierre is, you know, one of, one of the sort of guiding values of eBay was people are basically good. And, and I believe that and so i just sort of getting to know sort of his ethos through ebay was one of the things that drew me to a media network and this just fundamental belief that people are basically good and capable which is what is really behind our work at imaginable futures around unleashing human potential and so much of sort of why i you know my, my what i believe my purpose to be in life um, and and then also this deep belief that societal improvement is really based on empowered individuals and adaptive accountable institutions and so that that like overall philosophy um is is something that deeply resonates with me um yeah he and and his and and pam have done remarkable work so imaginable futures were part of the omidyar group which is a set of organizations that are all founded and funded by the omidyars that span a wide variety of things from our work and learning and, and education to um, um, uh, healthy democracies, to financial inclusion, which you'll know from your time at Gates and um, a whole, uh, you know, em- empowering a, a free free press, uh, just really remarkable work.
1: Amy, your website um, highlights a few of your remarkable grantees. I'd love to just dive in on and- uh, highlight a couple of these, and because our uh, audience includes a lot of education leaders, I I picked out a couple of educational. Uh, Wonder School is is mm-hmm. a terrific um, network, and seems really like a, a timely network. What tell us what Wonder School is?
2: So Wonder School is a network of diverse and um, high quality early learning experiences and and, and early childhood providers. Um, and they ultimately have created a, a platform that, is, that includes kind of operational support as well as coaching and mentoring and best practice sharing for early childhood providers. Super timely because, um, and, and by the way, they've tapped into this like really meaningful market because as anybody who's a parent of young kids knows is there aren't enough high quality early childhood providers out there. Um and they enable really teachers to do what they do best, which is teaching, and they provide sort of the supports on on the back end. Super timely because early childhood in essence has always been what is now developing in COVID, which we're calling potting and micro schools. That's really early childhood, that's what early childhood's been about. And so their platform, they're actually looking at can they how might they expand their platform to further support kind of all of the micro schooling and potting that's happening now and um you know, and, and, and Chris and team just have a really strong lens of equity through all of it. So I'm excited to see what they'll be able to do to support, support the change in the moment.
1: Amy, you were an early investor in uh, Bridge International, um, mm. which is now probably the world's largest network of, of high-quality, uh, low-cost private schools, um, mostly in Africa what What do you appreciate about uh, Jay Kimmelman and the network that he's created?
2: yeah, so Jay and Shannon have done just a remarkable remarkable job um, so they run community schools, but what they what they also do, which I'm extremely excited about from an equity perspective, is their partnerships with governments so they've been they've been partnering with governments on technical assistance um to bring the the platform of everything they built running running schools to um to all kids. And what I think is super exciting in this moment of COVID, because their curriculum, their lesson plans, all of their tools was in the cloud. I mean, even though Bridge was running schools, they're ultimately a tech company, right? They're really a tech company. And because their curriculum lesson plans, everything was in the in the cloud, they were able to move incredibly quickly to meet the moment and sort of pivot their work to deliver a multimodal kind of integrated approach in a remote at home setting. So they, you know, they, they moved to radio. Their first version was really like radio lessons that were fit for purpose, um, various kind of online quizzes and WhatsApp and, you know, various engagement with teachers through WhatsApp, et cetera. But what's interesting is all this requires radio, all this requires batteries. um, And so one of my big conclusions is in some settings, like, Learning still requires physical. It still requires physical. Um, so they're working on a two version that really tries to re- resolve a lot of that, and they're doing something which I haven't seen yet. Maybe you have, Tom, which I think is really, really innovative, where they're they're um, they're trying to put hardware into the hands of children that contain the radio lessons in the form of m p three players. So children can oh. listen multiple times and they don't need to worry about do you have a radio and they're you know, um, uh, um, you know, working through battery issues and that sort of right. thing. And then also trying to figure out how, put, how do they put the digital into workbooks. So just incredible innovation, incredible yeah. innovation.
1: It is. Um, a, another innovative uh, African network is Spark Schools. And uh, before mm-hmm. we recorded, I mentioned that I, I've had a chance to visit some mm-hmm. both in uh, Johannesburg and, and uh, in December. Um, in uh, the Cape Town area. So this is a remarkable network of uh, of urban, low-cost schools. W- what is it you appreciate about mm. them?
2: Well, Stacy and her team, um, uh, they they are just extremely focused on delivering a world-class transformational learning experience um for for all kids, and they've figured out how to do this well because they've really locked into this idea of blended learning, right um, which obviously works in their favor in this moment when kids are learning from home. Um, but they've really figured out how to reduce costs by um, combining great teaching and relationship with strong education technology um, with with really internationally competitive results.
1: Uh, i'll i'll include in our show notes stories on both bridge mm-hmm. and uh spark schools i uh, love that you guys have supported them and yeah. uh, and what about teach for all
2: yeah so so i I wanted just to share a little bit about Teach for all because again in this moment I think it's so spectacular so Teach for all is this network of over fifty countries um who are kind of utilizing the teach for model pioneered by teach for America. So this global network of education leaders. And, um, and so it's just, you know, at a time when everyone is searching for answers and innovation, the fact that they've got this global network is just really coming to light. Right. Right. And it's, it's so robust. So, so I'll just share one quick example. And then another kind of reflection, which is, um, they developed this WhatsApp channel for kind of teaching without internet. And almost overnight, they had over 1,500 teachers participating from 56 countries, sharing learnings of what does it look like to teach remotely, kind of without strong, you know, without wow. connectivity and laptops and all of this. And what does it mean like over WhatsApp? And there's this one story of this one teacher in Pakistan who was teaching two classes of 50 girls each and how she created this kind of WhatsApp school where she immediately saw, by the way, a ton of parent engagement, which I think is super interesting because it was oftentimes through parents' phones. And then the fact that she could really, like, differentiate her learning in ways that she couldn't when she was in the physical classroom is a really right. interesting observation. And this, like, light bulb that went off for her that, you know, I, I wanted, I'm teaching kids, not content, which is such a beautiful, beautiful learning. The other thing that's been interesting about Teach For All is, you know, their fellows are, are entrepreneurs, right? Their fellows are, um, you know, entrepreneurial leaders who are deeply rooted in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And at this time, so many governments, the teach-fours in their country was one of their first stops. You have entrepreneurial leaders who are young and no technology, come help us. And so just the recognition all across the globe of, the importance of leadership in education and collective leadership has been really beautiful to watch. Uh,
1: those are those are four great examples of the work that you've been doing over the last mm-hmm. decade. I think those were all made as uh, investments of uh, Omidyar Network. Uh, but you, not too long ago, spun out um, this new organization called Imaginable Futures. So these are all grantees or investments of yeah. uh, Imaginable Futures, but. Tell us about the spin-out and what this uh, new organization's about.
2: yeah, so um, we were a part of Omidyar network, um, an education initiative for seven years. and um, as we grew and you know supported more of these amazing game- changing entrepreneurs and ideas around the world, we kind of started to de- develop you know our own sense of scale and impact and and what we wanted to see and do in the world. and so it just made sense over over time for us to spin out as an independent firm with greater autonomy and you know empowerment and accountability to have even greater impact. Um, and so we brought into Imaginable Futures our fantastic team and our portfolio of over a hundred different grantees and investees representing over two hundred million in invested capital. Um, and I think the one thing that's unique about us is that we're a hybrid structure. So we both are make for-profit investments um, as from an LLC, um, and we make grants to nonprofits. We also use a bunch of other tools. As I said, you know, we're fundamentally a very entrepreneurial organization. We fund research and convenings and, and advocacy and a whole host of other things. But the fact that we have this hybrid for-profit, nonprofit structure really enables us to kind of work across the sector knowing you know education is fundamentally public sector private sector social sector it requires all three and we can really work across that with the structure we have
1: it's a it's a great structure i i guess to clarify you'd say you're an impact organization first is it really
2: unabashedly impact first investor okay
1: but yeah. then you have you have yeah. the flexibility to structure investments in a way that both promotes um Scaled impact and probably sustainability uh, in in the most efficient way is that fair?
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right that's exactly right so we you know we we start with what's the need and then apply the tool versus saying this is the tool that we come with um, and as we look at our investing, as I said, we're we and on the for profit side, we invest across the returns continuum really with an eye towards towards impact our returns are as the impact. That said, I just want to be really, really clear that we believe returns are important for the impact, right? They create sustainability. Right. It demonstrates value creation. It crowds in capital. Yeah. It enables to reinvest, to scale further, all those things, I mean, things, take, you know.
1: take Bridge, for example. Uh, I would argue that the impact that Bridge has created would have been impossible or very close to impossible to do philanthropically. But, they, but they've been able 100%. To, to raise an or, maybe an order of magnitude at, at least uh, four or five times as much as they could have raised conceivably uh, as a philanthropy. And yes. so, so that's an example of scaled impact because they not only had a great education model, they had a viable business model that allowed them to attract uh agreed. capital.
2: One, agreed, 100%. 100%.
1: So, Amy, you have a. It strikes me that you have a a wonderful but challengingly broad agenda. You you invest from early learning through post secondary in America, Africa, and Latin America. So, when you think about mm-hmm. sort of top of funnel, that's a big chunk of the world. So, how do you how do you think about collecting sort of the best ideas and then narrowing those through investment yeah. choices?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking it might make sense to just like take one step back, which is just at the highest level, we we think we we like to think of our mission as being deeply um, informed by global best practice and globally inspired, and then deeply rooted through our local local teams. Um, and so we we look for. Investments fundamentally that, that that demonstrate the world we're trying to create, right? A world where all people have the literacies, competencies, and mindsets to live purpose filled and opportunity filled lives. So, and as we do that, we take a, a local systems approach, really trying to understand the local system in which we're working, um, which is why the local teams are so important. And it also enables us to just be more agile. So, some of the things we've done in COVID and um, have really been because we can we can move that quickly. But the four, the four things that we look at when we're looking at an investment are potential for transformational impact, direct or via, implica- via replication, um, ability to reach historically excluded or underestimated populations, fabulous mission-driven leadership connected to our values, and then the fourth being, you know, anchored in the science of learning. So, as we look, so we don't focus on all three of those areas early learning, K 12, and um, sort of skilling and adult learning in all of our geographies. We do have, you know, more specific theses in each of our geographies. Maybe one yeah. other thing when you, you know, you're asking how do we make our investment decisions. One other thing that I think is particularly important to note during this time, Tom, is our um, organizational organizational value of, of of justice seekers, and our yeah. and a focus on equity. I,
1: I and gonna, so you have a beautiful yeah. set of values: uh, compassionate changemakers, mm-hmm. justice seekers, inclusive collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a word about wh- wh- where those came from, and and how you try to keep them fresh and apply them in your work.
2: Yeah. Well, so thanks for that. It's something that I'm. I'm particularly focused on and, and proud of it was a, it was they were co-created one of the very first things we did when we worked with the board to say you know what it makes sense for us to spin out of Omidyar network was I got the global team together for three days and we co-created our values um the very first thing we did we're very deeply rooted in our values and I will say they're beautiful and they're aspirational right I mean fundamentally yeah. we're we're, right. we're a group of humans and um and we are imperfect, and so we're always um, they they are they are aspirational values that we're hoping to live into every day, and we keep them fresh because wow we're we're just you know we're just a um um you know a nine month old organization, so they are still really fresh and um and we we try to operationalize them across so much so much of our work, whether it be our investment decisions or our people decisions or, you know, just how we interact each day.
1: Amy, your investments are, are they about 50, 50 between return seeking and and philanthropic? Is that by design or is it just worked out that way?
2: You know, it's really just worked out that way. We haven't, we have incredible flexibility. I'm just so grateful for, for my board and um, we, we have incredible flexibility and it just, kind of has has turned out that way. I do think that in this time of crisis, Tom, I can see us doing more nonprofit perhaps just right. given the, the dire need, um, stemming from the multiple crises around the world.
1: I, I want, Amy, I want to talk about risk, um, in, mm-hmm. in a, in a couple of respects. It, it strikes me that it's, this is true, especially of philanthropy, um, that, my global criticism of philanthropy is that it doesn't take enough risk, Uh, that it's, it's so interesting to watch these boards because people get rich uh, often being entrepreneurs and then they sit on boards, um, particularly of these perpetual foundations and they become very risk averse. And you see a book of work that is really, um, has very low percentage, um, of of risk taking when it strikes me that this for global society has to be the category where we take risk it has to be the social sector r and d and it I, I guess it strikes me that your structure allows you to encourages you to to take more mm. risk than traditional foundations it, d- would you agree that that most i would
2: yeah i i mean i so I, I, I love your thinking, Tom, and I and I, I agree. Um, I think that, that that this is a place where the social sector needs to be taking more risk. And as I said, one of the reasons why I love my job is we're 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 empowered and enabled to take that that yeah. that re- risk, and I'm I'm enabled to 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 bring that to the team. Um, so we are always trying new tools, new things, new approaches. Um, uh, you know, I think I think it's the right question. We, we typically invest in early stage. So we are taking risk you, typically by, by going more early stage and our investments are really positioned as kind of a de- demonstration portfolio for us to, you know, encourage new capital to, to learn how we might better serve the ecosystem to inform policy, to crowd in funders, inspire entrepreneurs, et cetera. And so, um, um, yeah, I mean, we take risk in a, in a host of different ways. Maybe I'll just share a couple of examples that come to mind. So one is because of that hybrid structure we spoke about, we're able to do some interesting things. So a couple of years ago, we got a call by a, a company called Duck Duck Moose, who said, um, we have one of the most incredible and what we what we determined through doing the research, they have one of the most incredible early childhood products out there. And they weren't able to be a sustainable company because of changes to how the, the app store was working and other things. And they said, and there was a proposal on the table to be acquired by Khan Academy. But in order to do that, they needed a multi million dollar check. And so it was this idea of having a for profit be acquired by, you know, be converted to a nonprofit and be acquired by a nonprofit, which was, you know, interesting. Um, and we were able to move incredibly quickly to make this happen and wrote a $3 million check back in 2016 that has had, such fabulous results! Um, they are, you know, especially in COVID, Khan is seeing record usage, and Khan Academy has had just like unprecedented demand in the in the first month since school closures. They saw an additional one million signups, and are, are continuing to grow. You know, two thousand percent year over year with a highly efficacious, beautiful product, and I can I can speak to it because my five year old daughter. Still uses it. Um, we've also used our risk capital to incubate um, ecosystem players. So we take the knowledge from working with these entrepreneurs to understand what's needed in the ecosystem. So two examples here are we incubated global schools forum, which is a global network that supports non state school operators. So think of spark or bridge. Um, enabling best practice sharing around the world and facilitating more supportive policy and government relationships. Um, We also incubated Promise Venture Studios, which is a design studio here in the United States for early childhood. Um, Matt Glickman was an EIR with us and um, just so proud of the work that they're doing to bring more innovation. And then we made some really early stage investments that are kind of seed stage that are where we saw like massive market need, massive impact and it's still really early so one that i would call it, i'm super excited about during this time is equity so equity um, basically the problem they recognize with that there is that there's 3 million college students every year who drop out of college due to like a very time sensitive and and, and somewhat small financial crisis right. in be the realm a couple of hundred things. bucks right yeah, yeah a couple hundred bucks um and so and in this time right financial security housing you know housing insecure, all these things are 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 moving in the wrong direction so they are really shifting how colleges and universities can respond to that by building kind of this like real-time tech-based platform that can access this emergency funding and need. So they're just exploding. Um, so it's, you know, unfortunate that they are, that they, that there's so much need, but really fantastic that we, um, we made the bet when we did.
1: Amy, we um, were connecting uh, because you, you just issued a terrific new report uh, that I, I read Last week, it's called Learning, Reimagined, Radical Rethinking for Equitable Futures. Mm. Uh, I found it beautiful and timely and provocative. Um, what, t- tell us about the report. What, what were you trying to accomplish with that?
2: Well, first of all, it means a lot for you to say that. So thank you. Um, um, so the truth is that this was initially designed to be an internal exercise. We partnered with IDEO because we just needed to get our bearings. It was very clear that the world was changing faster than our hearts and minds could process. And we needed to just kind of collectively get together and say, what, what are we seeing? What are we sensing? What might it mean? And as we did this, and we were looking far beyond kind of like our existing strategies, but really just trying to understand what was moving. Because we knew everything shifting, we kind of had to had had to open open up our minds and our worlds. And as we did that, what we found was that there were some really important, timely insights and questions that would not just be valuable to us, but to our peers and kind of the ecosystem more broadly. So in an effort to live into our value of courageous learners, um, we decided to kind of pull it together and and um, and share it out with the world. And And our hope there is really that some of these provocations, which are, you know, purposely hyperbolic at times, yeah. um, you know, to really stimulate juices flowing as but people that, are reimagining education.
1: I want to pull a couple of those out because there's a couple that just about made me shout out loud. So two two of the provocations, I'm going to I'm give you two of them together. Yeah. What if student agency became the most important measure of learning? Yeah. I love that yeah. one. Yeah. And then yeah. there's a related one. What if young people connected in new ways developed voice, organized for change across politics, climate, systematic inequities, uh, and even their own learning. So I love that picture of student agency and the ability to uh, to make an impact on the, on the world. Yeah. What if? What if people actually yeah, made that central I mean, to learning, right?
2: So, yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, there's no silver bullet to education. So even if people made that central, there's lots of other things that need to happen, but we just, um, we just thought that given there is no longer this idea of seat time you know or being confined in a classroom, that it just if we if we look at it differently to say and 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 i I want to be clear, this is not better for students, you know this is not better for students, but what what we were trying to you know in this in this provocation was what if what if we were able to unleash you know amazing things about this time and one is that students are no longer bound they're no longer bound to a seat to a classroom and you know what if what if we can unleash students um, with this with this independent time to set meaningful goals and then really hold them to excellence and it reminded me of you know there's a bunch of organizations in our portfolio that do this really really beautifully Um, I don't know if you know Africa Leadership Academy um, in South Africa. And and they're this, you know, a a pan-African high school kind of pre-university experience where they're just so focused on unleashing student leadership. And they do that partially through enabling student agency um, and really demanding excellence. I also think of, you know, Teach for India's kids, Kids Education Revolution. I don't know if you've ever been part of that but really looking at having kids kind of reimagine their own education.
1: Um, so. so I love uh, the pictures that you included and in the, the specific mm-hmm. examples of organizations promoting uh, difference-making. Um, I have a new book out this month uh, on difference-making. And so I, mm-hmm. I uh, love that section of the report. You mm-hmm. you uh, As you've alluded to, you also talked about what if learning progressions were based on competencies and not seat time and... What if um what if homeschooling really became the new school? If if we really learned things about pods and micro schools and different school formats. Uh, are you are you optimistic that we'll see innovations like that take off as a result of the pandemic?
2: I think there's no doubt I mean, there's no doubt that we're seeing it already. Right. And there's actually like a plethora of new startups and entrepreneurs, for profit and nonprofit, who are thinking about these things. I think, if I were to say one thing about it, Tom, is that I hope that um, you know that we will be able to tap into government funding to ensure that these are equitable to ensure that they can reach all kids
1: right uh, that that'll be the that'll be the challenge right uh, it, otherwise absolutely I, I guess the thing that i uh, other than the health impacts of the pandemic, I worry that it's been a step-function increase in inequity around the world, and and just in terms of the way it's impacted women, uh, people of color, uh, in both employment, uh, access to capital, and education. Um, And so unless we move quickly in public-private partnerships uh, to address the inequities uh, and to make sure that all people have access uh, to, to these sorts of benefits that we've been talking about, we're going to see more inequity, um, not not less, as a post pandemic. That's
2: Absolutely right. That's absolutely right, and it spans everything from, um, you know, the access to technology and um, um, and the language of the technology and the cultural sensitivity of the technology, and the um, to to the midday meal, and anxiety and depression. I mean, it's. It's, um, it's enormous, it's just enormous.
1: So we'd love the report, uh, Learning Reimagine, Radical Rethinking for Equitable Futures, take a look at that. Um, Amy, as we close out, uh, any thoughts on what's next at, uh, at your new organization?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say we are, um, as I think about, it's hard to look out too far these days. Um, The kinds of things that we're thinking about right now are ensuring that we're supporting our fantastic portfolio of change makers um, and being great investors and grant makers um, and and supporting our, you know, the individuals as as whole people as we would support our children holistically, Um, just continuing to learn and listen um, and, and hold our assumptions lightly, further centering our work on equity um, and, and experimenting. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. Um, the one thing I did want to say, Tom, about the report is, um, I really want to recognize, so it's, it's, you know, titled Learn, Learning Reimagined, um, that there are people listening to your podcast as who, who've been doing this their whole lives. Right. You know, there are teachers, they're education leaders, and so I just want to recognize and thank them and appreciate them for everything that they're doing today and have been doing for a long time to reimagine education and, and bring all that to life.
1: That's a great place to close. There are educators, uh, tens of millions of educators around the world um, that are reimagining education live as, uh, as we speak um, and supporting um, a couple billion young people under uh, really um, difficult circumstances so we we really appreciate the work that they're doing now um, I appreciate the way your organization has has stepped in and and is trying to um, provoke in a in a positive way and support uh, financially new models that uh, have the chance to scale and Uh, build access to to quality globally. So we appreciate Mm -hmm. your work and uh, thanks for joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you, Tom.
0: A big thanks to Amy for joining us today. For more on impact investing and funding models, check out episode 282 with Chantel Garvey. We've got it linked here in the show notes as well as on the blog at gettingsmart.com. All right. That's it for today, listeners. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.